You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the podcast where we're talking about Bitcoin. Today's guest is backed by popular demand, and his name is Parker Lewis. Parker is a noted thought leader in the Bitcoin space for some of his outstanding writings, and he's also an executive at Unchained Capital. On the show today, we cover his thoughts on supply chains, debt ceilings, trillion-dollar Fed coins, how the political environment is changing at the state level, and much, much more. So without further delay, here's my discussion with the thoughtful Parker Lewis. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. All right. So like I said in the introduction, I'm here with Parker Lewis. Parker, welcome back to the show. Preston, good to be on. Look forward to catching up. So you're a really busy guy. And uh, so what in the world's happening in, in your neck of the woods? Well, we had a um, an event here in Austin over the last few days. Um, technically, the Texas Blockchain Summit, I refer to it as the uh, Texas Bitcoin Summit. Um, <laughs> but we had... Uh, Senator Cornyn and Senator Cruz from the state of Texas in town. Um, and then we also had Senator Lummis uh, all speak at the, at the same event on Friday. Um, and then um, it, it was, a, it was a great host of people. A lot of people from the Bitcoin community were in town um, talking about the you know, kind of really centric to everything that's happening around Bitcoin in Texas. So, so that was fun. And then uh, after that on Friday, I actually made it down to uh, college station last night to uh to see texas a&m which I'm, I'm actually even though i didn't go to texas university of texas i'm not an aggie i'm, I'm a lifelong longhorn so but i uh, went down to college station last night it was for first time to see an aggie game in aggie land um and so that was pretty fun they uh knocked off alabama <laughs> you just had to point that out hey you know actually i i knew you were in alabama i actually didn't know if you were a bama fan or auburn you know i don't, I don't know where they draw the lines yeah, I'll tell you what, it's a uh, it's a pretty big rivalry between those two here in Alabama. But uh, if I had to pick, I'd say Alabama. Um, hey, so answer this for me. So when I when I think about the various states, I, I automatically Wyoming comes to the forefront as just being uh, kind of out there and leading the charge when it comes to uh, the legislation, the state legislation. Uh, Texas is obviously vying for that similar spot. So how do you view it? Uh, how do you view Texas in contention across all 50 states? And where where can they improve? What are they doing right? Just I'm curious to hear your point of view as somebody who's intimately familiar with this in, in the state of Texas. Yeah, I think, I think one distinction, um, and, and I love the state of Wyoming, um, I think that not not only just being welcoming and forward thinking about crafting legislation, uh, but then also having Senator Lummis there in Wyoming, a big advocate in the U.S. Senate, which I think is just um, for for the broader uh, Bitcoin movement. It's a really important voice, and it, it sounds like someone like Senator Cruz is, is is coming along there as well. The more, the better. Um, but I, th- I think one distinction between a state like Wyoming and a, and a state like Texas is they they really led um, from a legislative perspective first. There wasn't a big Bitcoin community. I think there's a lot of things about Wyoming, why um, Wyoming and, and Bitcoin will be um, 
a a perfect match. Um, but but they really started with the legislative side, and and really in Texas, I think it's been the reverse, which is that there are a lot of natural non-legislative, non-regulatory reasons why um, Bitcoin, Bitcoiners, and and the Bitcoin industry will flourish here. Um, and and I would really uh, probably, if I was to summarize it, that the energy. Um, the deregulated, so natural resources, the deregulated energy grid, um, which, and then the fact that mineral rights are almost 100% privately owned in the state of Texas, which is not the case um, in a state like Wyoming. Um, but then on top of that, uh, Austin is uh, really, a, ha- has become, a, become over the last decade, uh, a tech hub, you know, in, in a broader sp- speaking sense than just Bitcoin. Um, And then when you add on top uh, a fairly favorable tax climate and uh, with no state income tax and strong property rights, that's really, it's the combination of those three, the energy dynamic, the tech dynamic, and then the the tax and and, and regulatory environment here. And when you add those three things together, um, it really becomes a a gravitational force that's bringing um, the Bitcoin industry uh, to Texas. And I don't think that when, you know, ultimately Bitcoin's going to be everywhere, but kind of in terms of leading the charge um, over the next several years, decades, um, that, I, that I do expect uh, Texas to be um, a leader for, you know, I don't know if you've ever read the book. It's not necessarily one of my favorite books, but, but there's a book called The Accidental Superpower um, that, and, and that book's about America. But in Texas, and as it relates to Bitcoin, that there are uh, strategic advantages that, that, that you can't recreate that already exist here that, that will allow it to leave. When you talk about the tech hub there in Austin, I've often wondered, like, what's driving that? What what is created? Because it seems like just in the last five to 10 years, that's really kind of emerged as a tech hub where you go back 20 years. I don't remember that ever being really the case so what's what's driving that is it just the tax incentives that are that are doing that or is there something else i think and you while i'm not a student of this history um i did grow up in austin texas i'm a a native here and you know growing up austin was really a kind of sleepy college town the capital was here so it, it was more than just the university of texas um but michael dell i think if you if you trace back the history of Austin becoming uh, a tech hub, it would be the founding of Dell and Michael Dell um, that started to, you know, kind of that was on the wave of, of per, you know, kind of really before personal computers, you know, before there was a home in every house, um, Michael Dell and Dell were, were core to that. And then um, there was, you know, kind of all the ancillary industries that built up around Dell. Um, and then, and then kind of once that flywheel started, um, then you also, I'd say, probably add to it um, the what's the pol- the political and regulatory climate in other uh, in other areas, right? So when come, you know, it's not just tax, um, but but I think just two days ago, Tesla announced that they were moving. That um, things might seem to be accelerating, but those same underlying trends that once once there was a tech flywheel that that probably would, would be traced back to Dell. Um, realistically, the same things that are causing businesses to move to Texas uh, today existed 10 years ago. It's just becoming more obvious to more people. Um, and so, 
Um, Apple has their second largest campus here, um, but so there's also just a lot of developers, a lot of engineers. You, the university uh, has a big computer, computer science program, so um, that also drives it. A lot of people who go to UT stay in UT, and so there's just a lot of uh, um, computer engineers that are here as well. So um, it's uh, and then and then it attracts a certain type of people um, that, that that generally prefer kind of a more individualistic, um, you know, kind of individual freedom based. Uh, movement. So yeah, probably a combination of a number of reasons. Hey, so on your profile, I've noticed this for a while, but I, I've never asked you about it. Your profile says buy Bitcoin, delete Facebook. What's what's the background or what's the story on the second part there? I, I deleted Facebook a, a long time ago. Um, you know, I think Facebook is the, is the, is the social network. I've, I've you money and Bitcoin as a social network as well. It's a social consensus as to, to, to what the new form of money is going to be. Um, but I but I don't think that there could be a greater contrast between Bitcoin and the social good that, that it will drive. And I, I don't think that there's a worse company in America than Facebook. Um, it's just... Yeah, kind of the vitriol. It's like a, it's a place for people to go and you know scream at all of the people that they don't like, um, and ultimately Facebook monetizes that. And so I think it's a really, uh, it's very divisive. I think you know there there was I don't know how many years ago, but they they did uh, they basically did an experiment on some of their users to see if they could affect their emotions, um, where if they put negative news in their in their feed, if, if if that could you know trigger certain actions, obviously it could. Um, and so, and then I think people, people started posting basically just the, um, the, the filter of the 10% of how they wanted to portray themselves to the rest of the world. Um, and, and so just, just for a number of reasons. And then I think about people sitting on their phones and, you know, getting into spats about politics and, um, for four or five hours a day rather than doing something productive. So, it, you know, it, if, if they're, you know, kind of comes back to them both being social networks, Bitcoin, not in terms of like Bitcoin, Twitter and, you know, socializing, but that money actually is a, is a social consensus. It's a social network um, and that that it will lead to social good and, and that, that Facebook basically does the opposite. So um, if there's a company that's not that's not going to survive the Bitcoin standard, I would say it's Facebook. I love it. I'm not a fan of Facebook either. Um what are your thoughts on all the supply chain issues that are happening right now? What's driving it? Um, what's going to be the long-term impact of it? Just some of your thoughts. I, I think that it would be impossible um, to point to any one, uh, one thing that is driving the supply chain issues. And I think that this is one of the things that, um, that, that a lot of macro investors um, will will make an error. I believe it's a fool's errand. Well, they'll point to, you know, the Evergrande situation or they'll, they'll point to um, COVID or they'll point to the response to COVID with the vaccine mandates. And, there, you know, we're seeing today that there's a thousand cancellations on um, Southwest Airlines flights. and um, But then some of it's driven by the fact that, you know, planes aren't in right places. And so the reality is that, the U.S. economy and the global economy are extremely complex, um, and that the the U.S. financial system and the global financial system are incredibly fragile. So, to point to any one thing 
I think um, it isn't any one thing. Um, it, it is it is the culmination of thirty to forty years of fiscal and monetary irresponsibility, combined with you know in more recent time a government that thinks that they can take a uh, highly complex system, more complex, you know, maybe maybe rivaling the, the complexity of the human body, um, and and just stop it, and then think that things aren't going to go back to normal. Um, and you know, they they never were, but it, but it, it was an accelerant to the disruption. And so I think that um, when when you basically take that combination of complex economic system, highly complex, like highly complex supply chains, um, just on time delivery type uh, with, with, you know, I don't know how many vendors would be in a car or would be in a computer, but, but, but hundreds that as soon as there's a problem with one, then it causes delays of others. And then solvency, you know, uh, of different parts of, of solvency issues in different parts of the supply chain um, that, that it just starts to have a ripple effect. And so to to then be able to zoom back out and say, well, was it because the government shut down? Well, I was like, well, no, because the U.S. financial system was already incredibly fragile. Why was it fragile? Well, that's a story of 30 to 40 years of every time the economic system tried to eliminate imbalance, um, the Federal Reserve created an environment where imbalance could be sustained and then grow. And that then when you have shocks, um, you know, ultimately everything comes home to roost. So... Um, I do think that it's, you know, it's like a Pandora's box that it's that it's out. I don't I don't see how it uh, it gets better before things get a lot worse. Um, and I think that it ultimately will be, you know, kind of going through a, a you know a restructuring of the entire system. So this is not temporary. What we're seeing right now in supply chains is is just getting started. Is that what you're saying? I believe so. I'm not an expert on supply chains, but I do have an understanding of the the U.S. financial system and the um, and the complexity of, of the broader economic system. And so, when I, you know, kind of anecdotally, when I hear about uh, a car dealership here in Austin that typically sells eleven thousand cars a year, and I've been told that they're only going to get eighteen hundred deliveries next year, um, that that has uh, there is a whole host of inputs that could create that dynamic as well as consequences. Um, people that are going to have to be fired, car prices having to be increased, the, the you know, kind of more parts becoming, um, you know, more businesses that are in the supply chain of cars uh, becoming impacted by that. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know how, given um, the, the landscape in the U.S. financial system, the imbalance that exists within um, the broader economy, um, at the rate at which they're printing money, and kind of the, the, the talk around tapering, that that this is something that has to play out. That um, you don't just magically, um, you know, you, you can't turn. You know, a lot of people, a lot of I'd say, um, people whether it's in the government or the central banks that think this is like turning on a, a light switch and that you can turn it off and turn it back up. Um, it just expresses a, um, 
you know, a, I guess a, a large degree of naivety, um, but then also just a, you know, kind of a lack of understanding of, of the stakes at play. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. You know what I find interesting about this one, uh, Parker, is when you when you look at all the action that's been done by central banks over the last decade, um, it's almost like they always had a lever to pull to reflate things. Um, so like the market was kind of throwing a tantrum back in 2015, then it did it again in the 2018, 2019, it did it again, then we had the COVID. And each time it did this, and we're talking about you know a 20% plus correction on the S&P 500, the central bankers would step in, they would exercise more QE, they would drop interest rates, they would play all those games with the levers that they had to pull, and it would reflate the, 
reflate the stock market, right? The rest of the, the, the economy in the U S I think got more unstable and more unstable as all this was going on. And we're really starting to see that now here in 2021. But right now with the supply chain piece, this isn't something that they're able to kind of pull a lever to. So we've had a CPI print, which is the gauge that they're forcing everybody to, to look down and say, this is what inflation is at 5% for the last, I don't know, five, five months, we've had CPI at 5%. And based on everything that you just described and everything that we've been seeing, it seems like it's not going to go away. And so like, they're going to keep doing this. They're going to keep playing these games, but they can't make that CPI disappear or they can't make these supply chains get better by doing more quantitative easing. And so I'm just kind of interested you know, like what's, what's the strategy? What does this looks like, look like moving forward in the next six months? You, you had implied that, you know, you don't think it's going away. Does it amplify? Does it get worse? What are some of your thoughts on it? So, so yeah, I think that, you know, the way that I look at this, you know, especially if you talk to investors in the hedge fund community, you know, kind of wherever it might be, but, but, but traditional financial markets, they will look at 2008-9, which was very similar to March to June and into this year of, of printing money. They'll, they will say something very consistently as if they are all just parroting each other's lines, which they'll say that as to the Fed printing trillions of dollars, they'll say it was crazy. It's not going to end well, but they had to do it. It's like almost verbatim, you will hear a bunch of macro investors and high finance types parrot that line. And that they don't actually provide any logic between it's not going to end well and they had to do it. Um, And that it really just ends at it's not going to end well. But that once you start to understand what actually happens through the function of the Fed printing money via quantitative easing, it is that there is economic imbalance that exists and the market is trying to heal and eliminate in that imbalance. And the function of central banks printing money, uh, to, to sum it up in, in my mind, does two things. It allows imbalance to continue to exist and grow. Um, but that it also causes the deterioration of the monetary unit that coordinates uh, economic activity. And that that is, that is the really destructive piece because um, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot as it relates to Bitcoin is this idea that, uh, that money and economic s- systems uh, converge to a single monetary medium, very naturally to the function of money. But more Realistically, what happens is that economic systems emerge from from one money, that that an economic system actually derives from a particular form of money. Um, And what that means is that that the supply chains only exist because a broader and broader set of people with a broader, broader set of capabilities all use the same money. And that when the Fed does that combination of two things, allow imbalance to continue to exist and grow, as well as cause the underlying unit, uh, monetary unit, to not just depreciate, but 
to become less reliable, um, that when we see these supply chain issues, it's it's basically you know a, a ship where where water is leaking from all parts of the boat and it's about to go under. And what they were essentially doing was whack-a-mole. But just like we all know that it's not going to end well when they print trillions of dollars, it really isn't. Um, and it's not to say that this is this is necessarily the last cycle. I don't operate. I think timing and you know part of the recognition that economic systems are incredibly complex. It, it's not worth necessarily predicting. It's worth being prepared for all interim weathers, but also knowing what the end state is. Uh, that that is core to surviving all weathers. Um, and and that you know the the thing that I try to articulate, and I have one of the articles I've written is Bitcoin is common sense. Um, I, I try to visualize for people or get them to at least get this train of thought of like how when the Fed prints, you know, they, they've printed 1.1 trillion just this year. They printed, I believe, um, like 4.5 trillion since March of, of 2020. That if you actually think about the operation of like they just literally click a button on a screen and that's how the money gets created. Um, there's probably a few people that have to, you know, there's probably some financial control to ensure that not one person can just print trillions of dollars by clicking one button on the screen. But, but that, that is functionally how money is created in this system. And that through that operation, nothing like at the moment when the Fed puts a trillion dollars in, nothing economically changed. All that happens is the balance of who gets to act, allocate the monetary capital in the system uh, has now been altered by the federal reserve um you know imagine there's x amount of money and then there's x plus one trillion well the distribution of that money is different now the the economic system is is fundamentally different in this case um existing in a world where where there's greater and greater imbalance and so once the you know kind of once the bow starts starts to burst at the seam you know it's like you know, you can pull on the thread, you can't push it back in. Um, and that's essentially what's happening. Um, once, once the system is, is obviously um, structurally broken and people are losing their jobs and, people, and more people are dependent on government checks, it, it, it only can accelerate, right? So um, can they rescue it like they did in 2008 and nine? And can they rescue it like they did in, in, in March of 2019? Um, it would seem, you know, it's like never say never, but but we also didn't see those types of supply chains. And, and, and the thing that I, I articulate for people as well is that hyperinflation is not just a function of, um, and, and I don't I don't like to use that term in a in a dystopian or, or fear driven way, but but uh, but when I just explain it as a natural function, um, it's the way every fiat currency um, will ultimately end. Um, the if there's an idea that um, I think is I think it's just something that is true that that is inarguable that uh, that the the value of any good will trend towards its marginal cost to produce um, and the, the the cost to produce a dollar is zero the cost to produce three trillion dollars is zero the cost to produce fifteen trillion Venezuelan bolivars is zero um, that that this is a logical end game that people understand that um, that 
dollars are becoming more and more abundant, but hyperinflation doesn't just occur because governments print money. Um, what is actually happening is the, the monetary unit is becoming less and less effective at its exclusive purpose, which is coordinating economic activity, facilitating trade and exchange. And that as those supply chains break down, then you've got more and more money at the same time that you have less and less real goods. And you have a lot of people that will have a lot of the money and a lot of people that won't have any at all. Um, and that, that has a, a very negative feedback loop. And then once it becomes apparent that there aren't real goods and services or that you know, more, you know, that there are fewer and fewer of those and, and you have a dynamic where there's fewer and fewer real goods and services and at a time where there's more and more money, that is the combination of those two things. It, but what, what actually happened on the, on the lowest level was that the printing of money actually created the imbalance and created the environment where the supply chains would break down because the system was so fragile. Uh, talk to us about uh, the debt ceiling. So recently, there was a lot of uh, concern whether this was going to get passed. Everyone started talking about minting a trillion dollar coin. What is going on here? What What are some of your ideas on this one? So, I, I, I mean, I think this the, this discussion is the you know it, it's the perfect jumping off point for that that last part about you know the the Fed prints money, but the U.S. government is in a scenario where the Fed has to print money. Um, essentially, the Fed, and when I say has to, it's not, I mean, there is a reality that that um, that they shouldn't, um, but, but we also have to operate in the reality of understanding not only what their psychology is, but what their economic worldview is, um, as well as the, the degree of leverage in the system that dictates that if they're going to continue their charade on that they must print money. Um, it would be, they would all have to um, forget everything that they thought they knew for the last 40 years to, to reverse course and not do that. Um, but the, the, the dynamic that's happening is there is a, uh, because the, there's such a high degree of leverage in the financial system that when there's a shock, to the system, like what happened with COVID, but I, but I also do like to reiterate for people that the imbalance was already existing. Um, the repo markets broke in September of 2019. There was a massive imbalance in the oil markets that had already appeared in January uh, and February of 2020, and then COVID happened. Um, but, but, but COVID was an accelerant. That with it, with a financial system that is as leveraged as it is. And then the economic system shutting down like it that it was, that the Fed system needs credit expansion, otherwise the credit system will collapse. Um, I don't. The, the, the Fed does not understand that, but that, but that is that is that is the dynamic at play, because the, the financial system is so highly leveraged that if it's not growing, if it start if growth slows or growth contracts, the entire system implodes. Um, one one default actually causes the next. Um, it, it's a, it's a very negative feedback loop, and so, but when we're in a period like we are today, where growth is slowing and confidence is at maybe you know potentially all time lows, that um, that private there, there's a natural um, there's a natural function to want to contract credit. 
the, the credit impulse is impaired in those scenarios, uh, in the current scenario, and that the Fed really needs the public system credit to expand because it needs the overall credit system to expand. So um, it, one way or the other, you know, not only will fund the federal government in its pursuits of you know trillion and a half and three point five trillion dollar, um, what, whatever the budget might turn out to be. Um, but, but there's effectively a partnership there. Um, you know, there's, there's a constitutional separation of those powers. Um, and the fed is technically private entity. Um, but, but, but at this point that, you know, the bed is made and they're wed. Um, and so there's, you know, for, for my entire, uh, I'd say professional career, I can't remember how many of these instances there have been, um, but they all end the exact same way, that the debt seal, there will be political gamesmanship, um, that, but they're all just doing it to get what they want. Um, you know, they all have different motivations, but they all want something. Um, and they derive a lot of power by the government actually running, and that's true of both sides. And so right now, there's a lot of nerves in the market there's the Fed talking about tapering, and there's the federal government, you know, kind of debating a trillion and a half to three and a half trillion dollar budget. And there's a, there's a debt ceiling looming. And the reality is, there like if you think that this time is different, like that is the foolish position. Um, their their entire system collapses, and they're highly motivated to to not have that happen um, from a power structure standpoint. And so right now you know, kind of my view is the same thing will happen as it always does, um, which is they'll get to the last minute. They might even shut down the government for a period of time, and then they'll increase the um, the debt ceiling. And, and all the while, the, the debt and the uh, and the entire system will continue to grow, and the Fed will be the one that finances it. Like you mentioned, there was the reference of the trillion-dollar coin. Um, and my understanding of that, while it is not highly technical, is that um, – you know, in the current system, the Fed is actually the one that creates dollars, um, and it's the Treasury that, that prints dollars. Um, so that when a when a bank wants to convert a, a digital reserve to a physical note, the Fed doesn't print that; the Treasury does. But the but the Fed puts in essentially a request, um, and then that that digital reserve is com, you know converted to to a physical bill um, printed by the Treasury. And so in this case, the Treasury would mint a trillion dollar coin. Um, who knows what it was actually made out of, maybe gold, uh, just for, you know, to, to maximize whatever value you could pack into a trillion dollar coin. But, um, but then they would deposit that at the Federal Reserve, and then the Federal Reserve would credit it to the Treasury's general account. Uh, and then the federal government could, you know, circumvent uh, the, the legislative uh, need to increase the debt ceiling. What it only signals for everybody else who has any lick of common sense is that um, the the charade is 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 almost over. That when that we're getting to this point um, where the um, it's desperation. Yeah, the, the you know it, it's it's very clear to a lot of people that the uh, inmates are running the asylum uh, right now, and the in, in, and the inmates are the the congressmen and women who throw around words like trillions and trillion dollar deficits and um, that, that, that it's going to be a $3.5 trillion bill, but it, that it's going to cost zero. Um, 
that when they start getting to the the point where they will say we will print a trillion dollar coin and that there's a guy like Joe Weisenthal who's on Bloomberg that goes out and says that there's sound economic and legal theory behind it. Like <laughs> these people to the, to the actual adults are children. Totally um, children. And it's, and it's, it's becoming more and more evident. Um, Will Cole, who's a colleague of mine at Unchained Capital, also long, lifelong friend of mine um, from here in Austin, he was interviewing his mother-in-law, Senator Lummis at uh, this Texas Bitcoin event two days ago. And he asked her about the, the trillion dollar coin. And she had a really funny response. It was, um, she's like, well, I would say that if you gave me six trillion dollar coins and I gave you six egg rolls, that would sound like a fair deal. <laughs> I mean, it is a total breakdown in trust and very concerning that, that you have, uh, these entities trying to circumnavigate elected officials through desperate means of minting a coin that's worth a trillion. I mean, it's just, it's a little unfathomable to be quite honest with you just hearing it and, and, and it being so publicly uh, talked about. And then, like you said, you have journalists that are covering it with this lens. Well, do we call Joe a journalist? I don't know at this point. I mean, he's covering it in a way that is suggesting that it that it's common sense that it makes sense that this is what should happen and it's like what are you talking about like this is crazy talk um yeah and i i think that the the beautiful thing about it is that when the fed affects quantitative easing like most people when they say that bitcoin is complicated they have no understanding of the u.s financial system um the the plumbing of it how it works that's also why they can get away with quantitative easing. They're like, ah, oh, it's complicated. Like we, yeah. you know, the, the, the people design. that, you know, that, that explain like, oh, it's not really printing money. It's uh, they're swapping one liability for another. And then you start using swapping liabilities for another and you, you've lost somebody at the door. And that what ends up ultimately happening is in the last, you know, in the last year and a half, they've printed 4.5 or 4.7 trillion. And, you know, kind of effectively, they doubled the money supply. They When, when people don't immediately see, you know, 100% inflation the next day, they're like, well, they've printed money before and, and quote, nothing happened. It just happened slowly. Um, you know, and, and it ultimately will come to the logical endpoint. But when they get to the point of doing things so ridiculous as we're going to mint a coin that realistically it's not going to be made out of gold. It's probably going to be made out of nickel or copper. That's, you know, worth the equivalent of, you know, 15 cents and say that that is worth a trillion dollars that the QE thing didn't make sense to people, but it was complicated. This just articulates in very simple terms. Yeah. Like something is incredibly wrong here at multiple different layers. Do they think that we're idiots? eject um that, that, that becomes a thought process it, it really just, distills it down for people I, I love this point because let's say that they do keep raising the debt ceiling and they keep doing what they have been doing which is qe what they're effectively doing is minting the the trillion dollar 15 cent coin it's just in these different terms and much more confusing and, and much more difficult for the common person to grasp but all they're doing is they're bidding uh interest rates 
or they're they're bidding the price, pushing interest rates lower. And then I think the thing that so few talk about is the capitalization rate of the equity market because interest rates keep getting compressed more and more down to zero because there's there's a premium, a two two percent premium above that risk free rate that's being bid into the equity markets. And so the market cap of all the all that stock, anything that's equity based, is going to the moon as they continue to do these QE policies down to 0%. And that's not talked about. It's not even discussed. And I can't even imagine how many trillions that adds up to just based off of the QE of the manipulation in the, in the federal funds rate and in the, and in the bond market. But you have all that other spill out, spillover effects that, that go into the equity markets because of those risk-free rate premiums. Yeah, I mean that that is a reality. The other way that I the other I'd say framework that I think about it as in the decade following the great financial crisis, um, the Fed printed three point six trillion dollars or you know, digitally created. However, you know, again, people like Weisenthal will be pedantic and say they didn't print; they digitally create created three point six trillion dollars um, from two thousand seven beginning of 20, 2008 to the, um, let's see, I guess 20, over the next decade, I'm trying to get my frame of reference right to 2017, they, 2017, 2018, the credit system grew from about 50 trillion to about 73 trillion. So for $3.6 trillion added to the system, it created, you know, it basically got lent out more and more and $23 trillion of credit was created. Well, that $23 trillion of credit that's created on top of $3.6 trillion in new base money that exists, that ultimately finds its way to financial assets. Uh, and, and that, so for every dollar that essentially enters the system, it's those dollars that are entering the system which manipulate the cost of credit, both Fed funds as well as all, all other interest rates, all other dollar interest rates. The supply of dollars you know, in the you know, what drives dollar interest rates is supply and demand for dollars. Yeah. How do you drive interest rates to zero? Flood the market with more dollars on the supply side. Uh, but then once those new dollars exist in terms of base money, um, more and more credits created on top of it, and those 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 deposits find their way ultimately to financial assets. So, it's, so it's not only does the actual on a first order effect does does, does the leverage increase, but that that the the flow of funds. Uh, because it ultimately, if people are looking, whether it's a pension fund looking at, you know, kind of unfunded liabilities and you know needing to to find return in different parts of the market, then it pushes them into the equity markets. But but ultimately, there's a, um, you know, those are more, you know, I'd say third order effects. There's actually first order and second order effects directly tied to the base money, then to tied to the the new credit that is created as a function of that base money that spills into the equity markets as well. Um, but Everything will go down in Bitcoin terms, um, you know, despite all of the uh, all all of the money printing. But that's that's also because um, there, when, when the market is looking for real economic growth and activity, there's more and more dollars slushing around, um, kind of less productivity gains, um, more zombie companies, uh, everything from a valuation perspective at, at any historical valuation metric, whether it's PE, EBITDA, whatever it might be, or EV to EBITDA, however somebody looks at value, uh, everything's ridiculous. 
Uh, and so as more and more dollars slush around, um, find their way to the equity market because formerly credit investors are now equity investors, which creates, you know, kind of malinvestment in itself. Um, kind of, they're all looking around for uh, water, uh, like they've been starved in a desert for 40 years. And, you know, slowly people find Bitcoin and they realize uh, that, that, the, that the gig is soon up. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. All right, so uh, the ETF discussion seems to be getting hot and heavy these days. Um, many saying that they, they expect something to actually get cleared uh, through the SEC here pretty sh- pretty shortly. Um, th- from what I understand, it's going to be a cash-settled uh, ETF-type vehicle, not a physically-settled Bitcoin um what are your thoughts on the ETF in general? Then maybe some of your thoughts on cash settled versus physically settled uh, ETFs. Well, I, I think that the ETF, if I go back to 20, I think it was 2017 when the, when Gemini submitted for an ETF and they got rejected from the SEC, there were, my reading of that response was, and that that was asking for a physically settled ETF. That there were nine, there were there were like nine or ten reasons why they said they were rejecting it. And I read it though as this was I was at I was at Hayman at the time, so it might have been twenty sixteen or it might have been early twenty seventeen. But um, I read it as if you fix these nine things, I'll come up with another nine things. Um, now we're. Um, that that it was basically a signal of under no circumstance do we want a Bitcoin ETF. Now, um, you know, that was at a time where I think Bitcoin had a, uh, I don't like to think about it as marketing cap or of market cap, not marketing cap, but, uh, but, but a purchasing power of probably 15 to 20 billion. Now it's in excess of a trillion. Um, now much larger institutions are at least publicly um, whether they were whether there were some then or not that that there are very large um, institutions that that are involved in Bitcoin um, that have power and influence, and so um, I think that the same though is true now as it was then that really the SEC has no interest in a in a physically settled Bitcoin ETF. I think realistically they don't have an interest in any ETF, but that there are interests now involved that make that untenable. And that that the best cop out is a uh, is an ETF that is that is based on the CME futures or you know whether it's a CME combination of CME back however however they look at it um, you know I guess that's really up to the issuer and, you know each one will present you know kind of their plan uh, I ultimately think that it's a sideshow uh, truthfully I think that the only thing that it, that is positive to come of it is that uh, it will it will legitimize Bitcoin in, in the eyes of some and it will make it more difficult for the federal government to reverse course and um, take really onerous actions against Bitcoin. They're going to, nothing good for Bitcoin is going to come out of DC. A lot of good is going to come out of the states, um, you know, on the, on the state legislative side or governor side. But, but my point is that, that, that Washington DC and Bitcoin are not, you know, are not, not friendly. Um, and so, um, but I do think that if it, even if a cash settled ETF were approved, that that would, you know, in, in certain ways kind of create an opening that would make it more difficult for somebody to come out and say, we must ban Bitcoin, you know, whether it's Brad Sherman or some other clown um, that exists in Congress. 
And so, so I think that that is a positive. Realistically, an ETF is, you know, a small step better than GBTC as a way to, to own Bitcoin. Uh, but practically speaking, it also has everything that is negative about GBTC involved. Um, and so, you know, the more people that, you know, kind of think of Bitcoin as a financial asset rather than a monetary asset, like there's a reason why you know, Pizza Hut and Starbucks and uh, there's another large company. Uh, what's the one in El Salvador? But there's three large companies, uh, Pizza Hut, Starbucks, and McDonald's are accepting Bitcoin for payment and they're not taking Facebook stock. That um, there's a fundamental difference between, or even a U.S. Treasury for that standpoint, there's a fundamental difference between a monetary asset and a financial asset. Uh, an ETF is effectively treating a monetary asset like Bitcoin as if it was a financial asset. And what, what have you done as a result if you buy it through an ETF? You've taken on unnecessary counterparty risk. Um, and you, you've basically opted in to an inferior way to own Bitcoin when you could have owned it in a superior way. And so the, the example that I use is GBTC. Even though GBTC is a, is a, tr a trust structure and not a, um, an ETF, the, the reality is that GBTC is custodied at Coinbase custody based on my understanding. So um, if you decide to buy GBTC, you have Coinbase's counterparty risk, you have Grayscale's counterparty risk, you've got um, Grayscale's parent company, uh, and then you've got uh, whoever your broker is that whose name it is held in. Uh, you, you likely have four layers of counterparty risk. And so if you could just go to Coinbase and own it at Coinbase and have one layer of counterparty risk rather than adding unnecessarily on three additional layers of counterparty risk. So an ETF might be better because you can, you know, it'll be, they'll be structured to manage to nav, but from a, from a way to hold Bitcoin, you know, there's, you can hold your own keys and eliminate counterparty risk. You can hold it with Coinbase or you can do a Coinbase route and lay, add on four layers of counterparty risk. Like, why would you ever do that? So I think that the only, the only true benefit is yes, more money will flow in, um, but, but that the, the true benefit is that it gives credibility and that it really cuts out a leg. It's like when when people were worried about China, oh, Bitcoin mining's you know concentrated in China. Well, now it's not. So you, you no longer have that complaint. As soon as a ETF is approved of any fashion in the United States, that uh, then the argument that the US is going to be, and Bitcoin is going to be, become more ridiculous to pair it. Do you think that it's gonna have any type of uh, price impacts uh, because now more people have access? Despite all the all the arguments that you make, which are clearly you know all valid, <laughs> do you think it's going to? I think that realistically, um, I think that that it will it would be more fooled by randomness than actually having an impact. Um, you know that 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 what's also happening at the same time is that that what is happening beyond just an ETF is that Bitcoin, more plumbing is being built every day. Yeah. Uh, more, you know, kind of different institutions opening up rails, right? Like NIDIG working with uh, Fiserv to turn on the ability to buy Bitcoin at your 
local regional banks so you don't have to go over to Coinbase. Uh, basically lighting up that plumbing without you having to onboard with another financial institution. Like something like that to me would be more impactful than, than an ETF. But 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 if I think about it in the con in that context, it is more ways with more partner institutions are lighting up the little button that says buy Bitcoin. Um, and that is happening as a function of knowledge distributing. More and more people are finding about Bit finding out about Bitcoin. Bitcoin, every time that somebody on the periphery believes that Bitcoin died, it didn't. And then it comes back into their conscious at, a, at or near an all-time high. Uh, and so, yes, you know, certain pools of capital will open up and they will you know, buy an ETF when they wouldn't otherwise. Uh, but to, to me, that, that doesn't, like, um, doesn't change the adoption curve. You know, that, that, that is not something that fundamentally shifts it. Uh, and it would be one small um, kind of one small thing that would happen alongside of other even larger macro shifts. But it would be a single thing where people would be like, oh, the price went up because of an ETF. We're like, no, no, the price went up because more billionaires and 100 millionaires and millionaires and, you know, every worker in the country figured out that the Federal Reserve is printing trillions of dollars and that this thing bitcoin isn't just magical internet money that that there's real innovation in digital scarcity and that it's the foundation of a future monetary system maybe i need that and so i think that the etf will be a good headline but but it would be more of a fooled by randomness yeah i agree with you on that um i definitely agree with you in the short term here is if it does roll out and uh, we see that and if the price would go up, I don't think that it would necessarily be because the ETF was approved. Where I could see it having an impact is further out in the timeline when let's say the price just really starts to rip. Um, let's say the price blows through 100,000 and it gets to 110 or 120,000 in short order. And you have people who don't have a Coinbase account, don't have a Kraken account or whatever exchange you're talking about, but they do have their TD Ameritrade or whatever they, they use, and they just now type in a ticker and they smash buy for that ticker that they all have access to in retirement accounts or whatever. And I think that that could have an impact just because you have access to so many more people and the hurdle, the frictional hurdle of them having to open an account at an exchange has been removed. Um, I think that that could have yeah. an impact. Look, I mean, I think that if I was if I was thinking about it from a fundamentals perspective, it's like, does it change the fundamentals? No, uh, obviously not. Yeah. Um, you know, doesn't the the reason to own Bitcoin has not changed because an ETF exists. Yeah. Is it a better product than GBTC? Yes, absolutely. You know, kind of ETF far superior to to GBTs. GBTC's product. It creates competition in the market. It will actually be managed by people that could, that know how to manage an ETF. So the product itself will be better. So there will be some marginal demand for that because what you just described, most people can go do with GPTC. And that's yeah. what's happened, right? Like a bunch of RIAs have plowed their clients into truthfully a bad product because it's the only thing available. So those people that that want to buy it via that mechanism practically speaking, have something that is like as flawed as it is that, that if they want dollar exposure to Bitcoin rather than Bitcoin itself, there is something in the market. Um, and that 
what we also see is that, you know, the way I describe it is that price is an output. It's, it, it's, a, it's an output and that monetary properties are the input. And that when, you know, the scenario that you describe, when Bitcoin gets back through its all-time high and is screaming and double and people are FOMOing and buying it because they have no idea what's going on, um, it's because there was actually a fundamental signal that was sent that, that more and more people stared at the equation of Bitcoin, the Fed, the ECB, the BOJ, the insanity that's going around saying, no, actually Bitcoin makes sense to me. I'll, I'll adopt that because more and more people are gonna adopt it because it actually has sound incredible monetary properties. Um, and so, so I always like to come back to a fundamental and something like this because the only reason that Bitcoin will be higher than its prior all-time high as, as denominated in dollars or euros or any other cross of currency is because somebody evaluated the fundamentals and accumulated when everybody else was panic selling. Um, and that that is why Bitcoin doesn't die. And so when that happens, though, like that's when Coinbase goes down because literally their user base 10Xs. When people are motivated to do something, they will go through the pain and do it. And what exists today is that it's not just Coinbase, but there's River, there's Swan, Unchain, you know, more and more places popping up to buy Bitcoin, that it's all of the different possible network connections where people can make it easier and easier that causes that. So it's like people actually go through a lot of pain if they're particularly motivated. I do agree that on the margin, there will be some universe of people that now if, you know, iShares has a Bitcoin ETF, they'll buy that when they wouldn't otherwise buy GBTC. But I do challenge that, you know, kind of uh, that uh, uh, more so it will be driven by, you know, somebody might not have gone and opened up a Coinbase you know, when the price of Bitcoin was going from 60000 to 30000 and they were about to, you know, dance on its grave um, before it rose like a phoenix from the ashes, as it always does. Uh, but that then when Bitcoin's 120 k that got the same person that was like, no, nah, I'm not buying it, it's dying, that, that they'll be motivated to buy, open up a Coinbase account and not tell their friends and buy some. So Michael, Michael Berry just, just blocked you, Parker. Yeah, he, he might or, or Mike Green. I don't know. <laughs> hey, uh, do you think that the typical person has the capacity to uh, self-custody Bitcoin? When you just think about your common person that knows nothing about any of this, do you think that they have the capacity to take ownership of this? Or do they need to outsource something like that? I, I think that the normal person, yes, will self-custody. Um, I think that I think that it is actually easier to do um, than securing funds on Coinbase, um, and that is for technical reasons. Um, that it's actually there's two things that happen with self custody, and, and we're talking about people's life savings, right? Um, in, in many cases, again, a lot of people. You know, Michael Saylor has a quote that is. Um, you know, if you actually understand Bitcoin, there's no way that you only own one percent of it, uh, and that and that's that's true. Um, that that if you actually understand what Bitcoin is and, and why it exists and how fundamental uh, it will be to our entire economic system being viable or, or you know and then flourishing into the future, that, that Bitcoin will be the solution to that. You don't just have one percent of your wealth because you are exp you have ninety nine percent of exposure. That's what you figure out along that path and that if you have an amount of money that represents your life savings um 
that or or a large share of it uh, because because when you do truly like when Bitcoin clicks for you at a fundamental level, like you're going to have more than 50% of your assets in Bitcoin. That, that This isn't like, you know, RIA portfolio theory. We're like, oh, we should have 1% of this and 2% of that. It's like, no, this is the best form of money that's ever existed. Um, it, it's not too volatile. It's going to be adopted by 7 billion people. And uh, I'm going to own a lot of that. That if you're in that world and you have them, whether it's, you know, 50% of your portfolio or something that you just can't afford to lose, we saw a week or two ago about how 6,000 Coinbase accounts that, have, that had 2FA set up uh, were hacked and drained. Uh, imagine that was your life savings. Like, would you ever put yourself in a scenario where even if it happens to 0.5% of people or 0.1% of people, um, that is too high of a prob- probability to put yourself into a ruin event type scenario. Now, in that case, because there was some error on Coinbase's side, that Coinbase made those folks whole. Um, but before Coinbase, it's any number of, there've been any number of scenarios. There was the Canadian exchange, there was a South African exchange, there was Mt. Gox before it. Um, that there is a reality that people believe that holding Bitcoin, the keys to your Bitcoin is, is daunting because there's permanence to private keys. But once you actually hold private keys, um, you and, and generally people that, that are used to storing things that are valuable, understand that, that things don't get up and walk away. There's there's high degree of redundancy such that if you lose a key or, or even lose a key and, and a backup or, or multiple parts of your security setup that, that there are ways, and that's what we focus on at Unchained Capital, helping people self-custody in, in, in ways that are highly fault tolerant and eliminate single points of failure so you can make numbers of mistakes and still have your Bitcoin. That, the difference between self-custody and cold storage and working with an exchange or a third-party custodian is that when you work with a third-party custodian, you 100% in all scenarios have a single point of failure. Um, that you have a single point of failure because first and foremost, it's permissioned. Uh, and you know, if you see what's happening in Lebanon, people can't get their money out of the banks because it's an abject disaster. Um, Bitcoin, you can hold on a permissionless basis, and that that gives you and grants you a, an incredible amount of power. But more from a technical perspective, why I say that self-custody is actually easy and why more and more people do it if it represents a material amount of their wealth, from a technical perspective, it is much more difficult to, to secure a password and to avoid the consequences of living in a permissionless or, or, or in a permission system where someone could just say, no, I'm not going to give you access to your money, uh, that being your single point of failure, than it is in a world where you actually sever it Bitcoin is a digital bearer asset. And when you have your own keys and you have cold storage, you actually sever the internet connection. That it is, you massively reduce your attack surface when the way for somebody to get a hold of your Bitcoin is no longer accessing your account on a remote basis at an exchange like Coinbase, like like hackers did to 6,000 people. But when your keys live in a combination of safes and safe deposit boxes geographically distributed when you need more than one key to move any Bitcoin. Uh, and so the, the analogy that I use to simplify it for people is um, that you know, when think about or envision how many times you access your money in the dollar world. Maybe you, you, you affect five or six transactions in a day, maybe fewer, um, but you're you're accessing your funds about 0.1% of the time, or maybe less, 0.01%. But 
but there's an internet connection around the clock that that is there to um, to access your funds. You're actually spending, at least in this day, your Bitcoin less frequently. So you're you're generally just checking on it to check balances and that it's there. Uh, but think about in the, in the Bitcoin world when you have a Coinbase account, like you only ever move Bitcoin maybe once a week, maybe once a month. Realistically, it's probably fewer than that, once every three months, once every six months. But when you're sleeping 24 hours a day, you're connected to the only way that you have to access your Bitcoin. In that world, you have massively increased your surface area. And so what we do, uh, and that's why the longer that somebody holds Bitcoin, the more likely they are to self-custody because they understand that, that dynamic. It is actually harder to secure a password to an account that your only way to access is remote, it's actually easier to take a physical key and put it in a physical location and physically is secure. Um, that, that somebody, and, and this is also not to say that everyone has to have guns, but when somebody can hack you remotely uh, versus have to come into your house or also get to a safe deposit box, but they're less likely to do that because they're, they're going to um, you know, have a higher probability of having physical harm. So um, the, as we you know, kind of develop solutions, which we are today, uh, we onboard a lot of people for, who are first-time Bitcoin buyers directly to holding their own keys. Uh, because we use multi-sig, because it's collaborative custody, because we're there as a partner, I think that that will be the standard, that in four years when people own Bitcoin, the idea of going to Coinbase will sound for that that it will, that it will be flipped um, because uh, the solutions will get better, but that the market will also have more and more education about you know, trial and error. And, and the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that uh, it, it eliminates moral hazard. Every It pushes ultimate accountability to the user. That if 6,000 Coinbase users get hacked, as, as bad as I feel about that, and again, in that case, they got that make it whole, but usually when Coinbase accounts get hacked and money gets drained, they don't. Um, that doesn't impact me. I've got my Bitcoin. There's no socialized losses. There's no counterparty risk. Um, and for people that actually understand Bitcoin, understand that it is a finitely scarce resource. And, and there is a reality that uh, markets do have no memory. Uh, but for listeners or listeners of your podcast that remember 2008 and 2009, counterparty risk is a thing. Uh, and that when you find out that it's a thing, uh, it's probably too late. <laughs> and so those that are smart, um, and that actually understand Bitcoin and understand its value, um, will start to realize that the, the power that you gain from having permissionless access to your money and by eliminating counterparty risk and eliminating single points of failure, uh, that that is the smartest and best way. And it's actually achievable. Um, there, there just is a knowledge gap that needs to be bridged. And um, there's more and more companies that are helping to do that. Ours uh, at Unchained Capital being one of them, but, but there's other good companies out there too. Talk to us about your ideas on tax planning, because uh, a lot of people that listen to the show have a decent net worth. Um, They might have substantial gains on their hands. How do you think about tax planning under those for those people with that situation and particularly for anybody holding Bitcoin? So uh, first, I will say that uh, I'm not a tax attorney. Uh, This is not a tax advice, Uh, but that. that, that it is definitely true that as more people um, accumulate 
a non-immaterial amount of money and as as bitcoin exists into the future that um that that people start to think about passing on wealth um to their to their family but uh but that also thinking about you know kind of the technical aspects of uh, of inheritance planning so you know i think there's a technical aspect of, of actually physically how does this um get passed down and then there's the tax side of i you know there's nothing new about it in the sense of everyone always wants to maximize the amount that they can they can you know allocate how they they choose whether it's to family or whether it's to um, charities rather than the federal government you know and, and i think it's important that that people kind of understand that frame of mind i think that um one of the well, one of the things that, that we're doing at unchained is we, we recently brought on jeff andrew um who who is our head of retirement and inheritance that um the, the first thing that jeff is working on is an ira product where people can hold their own keys um with that we're, we've actually started to pilot um there will be a broader launch um in the coming weeks um but that he's also focused on on the question of inheritance and that um kind of there's the aspect of holding bitcoin in such a way um with with, act, with actually with a plan um so that it doesn't get caught up in a court process and you know whether it's held in trust a lot of people are evaluating whether to hold it in trust where, where they can avoid um painful probate processes uh, but that also you know in order for people to actually have credible plans that, that they're confident in not just to for our estate planning purposes but for tax planning purposes that that more of the people that actually have the knowledge and expertise uh, to plan need to get involved. What we've seen is that more attorneys are getting focused in this area um, and that there will be more and more services coming out um, from Unchained and others. I don't have, you know, kind of particular strategies that I would say other than, you know, when I talk to talk to my parents or talk to older folks, they generally think about retirement or kind of, you know, kind of tax planning. Uh, ultimately, before you get to that point, you need to understand kind of the, the fundamentals of Bitcoin, which I think, you know, is still a uh, a 99% problem, um, and that that you're going to need Bitcoin to um, to buy groceries in the future. I think at some point in the future, and, and this isn't necessarily specific to your question, but it is pertinent to the tax question. I think at some point the uh, the, the federal government will uh, change the the tax treatment of Bitcoin to um, whether they make it legal tender to treat it as currency. Uh, and through that, they will likely accelerate capital gains um, because they, they're going to need the federal government to be capitalized with a form of money that actually functions. Um, and so I think that the most important kind of order of effects is understanding Bitcoin, why you should own it, understanding then how to secure it such that in the future you have access to it, uh, and then figuring out how to minimize your taxes. But but I also operate with the reality that, that a whole lot of things are going to change because of Bitcoin. And I focus a lot more time and energy on the first two, uh, and never selling my Bitcoin so I don't incur uh, taxes. Last question I got for you is on the Bitcoin lending side. Um, I know I th- I think I had this conversation with you privately where we were talking about the various risks that uh, many of these lender these lending platforms have inherently because of their institutional books versus their retail books. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your ideas or your your opinions on the lending space as it exists today, and then how do you see this evolving into the future so that it becomes a little bit more secure and not as risky as maybe it is right now? 
Yeah, I, I think that, and I can't remember when we came on, but I, I believe it it was either six months ago or like 18 months ago. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember. It was probably about six uh, months ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, I knew that it was like April, May timeframe, but yeah, you know, the last year and a half feels like an eternity. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, so we have a, a pilot that we've, uh, contemplated and worked on with, with an exchange, um, that would essentially hold Bitcoin in collaborative custody while Bitcoin is on loan. Uh, I had an exchange and, and effectively able to trade. And the idea behind it is that uh, kind of how how certain goods or stocks trade on an exchange uh, can be and, and oftentimes is and should be different than how those assets are custody. An example being that in the, um, you know, kind of today in, in the Bitcoin exchange world, all Bitcoin is generally held on exchange rather than in, in third-party custodians. Um, that is very different than the worlds of stocks and bonds. New York Stock Exchange is not at custody of any stocks, but it trades a, a lot of stock. Uh, and that the, the stock is oftentimes actually custody at the, at the DTC. Um, and so this idea that, you know, maybe you, if, if all Bitcoin lending that happens today, like no one's lending Bitcoin to go build a building. Um, so, so that's an important thing because there, there is, there's a, there's a reality in the dollar-based world that everyone kind of was trained to earn interest. It's like, oh, if you're not, if you're not making your money work or earn interest, you're doing something wrong. Um, and and they, they don't think about the risks that they're actually taking when they do that. Um, so yield doesn't, like, and this is going to sound crazy, but it might not sound crazy to a few people who listen to it because it might actually describe them. There's some people that just think that interest magically shows up. <laughs> um, that you put your money in and they pay you some money out and how that happens, they don't know, but it, but it just does. And, and I'm, I say that kind of jokingly, but it's also true that people think that when they put money in a company that pays them Bitcoin yield, that like money is, that, like I've, I've talked to people where they think that when they deposit Bitcoin to BlockFi, that the money is just, the Bitcoin is just sitting in BlockFi and they're earning interest. But what really happens, because it's, the, and it's not specific to BlockFi, it's the only way that any Bitcoin lending works is you deposit your Bitcoin in, they take your Bitcoin and move it out, or if it's at the same custodian, it's at a different account, transfers out of the account of the person that you gave it to. Uh, and it's not there, and it's at risk. Um, and, and so that's the first thing, that, that you're taking something that is a finitely scarce asset that in my view represents the greatest asymmetry that's ever existed in the entire world. And you fundamentally change the nature of what it is you own. You, you had that and now you have counterparty risk of multiple institutions, uh, essentially. And that if you're lending into a black box and you, you, you can't evaluate the nature of those counterparties uh, and you're trusting institutions that are ultimately very young and you're doing that in a world where but their lending is a finitely scarce asset in which there are no, are no bailouts. Like you're making a decision with an amount of information that, that, uh, that you need more of. And so what we were contemplating, are contemplating is a, an arrangement where you, you have a known counterparty, you have a known way of how that Bitcoin is actually custody and that no single party would be in control. Um, and that there'd be an idea that if all Bitcoin that is lent, kind of getting back to the point where I started was, that the, the only way that they're able to, to, to 
pay yields in Bitcoin is that the returns are generated via sub-trading activity. You're lending Bitcoin oftentimes for someone shorting Bitcoin, uh, and they're trying to make income based on volatility. Uh, and they're not necessarily just directionally short Bitcoin. They can be arguing Bitcoin um, spreads, you know, long on Kraken, short on Coinbase, long the futures, short the spot. You know, it's not just people, it's not, you know, there are some crazy people out there that are just directionally short Bitcoin. Um, you know, those, those people are going to need some, some serious help at some point in the future. But, um, but that, but, but that, th- there's a reality that all income that is derived and paid on yield products in Bitcoin lending is the counterparties are trading firms. Um, that gives me a lot of pause and should give a lot of people a lot of pause. Um, but that if you are going to structure a product, if you recognize that all Bitcoin yields are derived from firms that are tra- pursuing some sort of trading activity, um, that ultimately that Bitcoin winds up on exchange or some venue where it's traded. So our idea was to go to the exchange enter into a collaborative custody arrangement where you could certify how the Bitcoin is held at the exchange isn't singularly in control. Uh, and that, that you could actually lend in a capital efficient way on a secured basis rather than today what happens is that all lending is to trading firms and, and on the institutional side, generally on an unsecured basis, let's say 100%. Um, but, but given the nature of the problem that it solves, which is one of capital efficiency, it's why many firms borrow Bitcoin. They have to have dollars in Bitcoin posted all over the place to pursue ARB strategies, um, that it's generally on an unsecured basis. I don't think that Bitcoin should ever be lent on an unsecured basis. It is too precious of an asset and counterparty risk is too real um, to do that. What uh, what ultimately happened with our product was when that, um, uh, it will, will likely have it out in the future, but um, the, when, when the, when the spread of the, um, of the GBTC trade went from a premium to a discount, which it fundamentally should trade at a discount, uh, a fairly steep discount, um, given the nature of the product, that the demand for Bitcoin borrows collapsed. Uh, and, and and that caused the market interest rates to collapse. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately, you know, there were, you know, there were firms that had promised certain level of yields and they were essentially going to anybody that was remaining in the market to, to borrow Bitcoin and, and driving interest rates down. And it got to the point where we were like, okay, well, you know, this, this market structure doesn't make sense. There's no, there's no kind of rational defense to, to lend Bitcoin at these nominal rates. Uh, and so we just kind of d- deferred it. But I do think that that still is the vision. We will have that out uh, at some point in the future, but, uh, but the market structure uh, it just needs to, to to come in a bit um, and rationalize. Parker, I could talk to you all night. Um, thoroughly enjoyed this. Every time we get a chance to talk, I just love talking. You're so smart. Um, I wasn't going to ask another question, but I had this one written down and it relates to what I'm saying right now. So Sammy asked, I'd love to know how he learned to think the way he does. Your ability to reduce to first principles is unmatched and very unique. Give us a tip. What what can people do to uh, be better at dissecting critical thinking and uh, getting down to first principles? I think you just have to you, you have to start at being really dense. Um, you know, I I would you know, I don't know. I, I've never I guess consciously thought about that. <laughs> um, so <laughs> well, do you read a, hard, a lot? Do you read a lot? It's a hard question to answer. I, I think that it's that. Um, 
there's a lot of noise and I'm actually fairly risk averse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, as an example, when I was getting in, getting into Bitcoin, it was, it, Bitcoin made no sense. And then as I, you know, I had the benefit of being able to meet say Dean Moose before he wrote the Bitcoin standard, there were a number of people that I met that helped me understand things I didn't know before. And so it was that it, it was like Bitcoin clicked for me. Like it, it started to make sense, but I, but I had a bunch of ideas jumbled up in my brain where it was like, you know, kind of a, like a lightning strike where you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense now. But now I have to actually get back to that same point with reason and logic to reaffirm that, it, that, it, that it's actually a defensible position. Um, and so I, I, think, I, I try to think, and that's a lot of what I've done with my writing and then that writing, once I was able to distill it down, kind of like I carried that forward or at least that thought process down, which was I kind of recognized something about Bitcoin, but it was before I could describe it. And in order I, you know, but then in the process of actually distilling my thoughts, it was going down in a very logical, uh, rational way to say, okay, that idea that just kind of triggered in your mind of like Bitcoin makes sense that it's going to be money and the whole world's going to adopt it. Like, you know, break that down into like the hundred different parts to to how your mind just put that all together in one flash. Uh, and and I, I think about it as also trying to get down to the things that you're most certain about. And so with Bitcoin, it, it started with, as an example, I know independent of Bitcoin, why the federal government is going to print trillions of dollars. I have a, I have a fundamental understanding of the construction of the U.S. financial system and I think I have an understanding of it, not maybe, you know, kind of technically how they actually click buttons and print $3 trillion, but I think I understand the cause and effect better than the people at the Fed do. And so, but I also know that that system will not last. And so like I, I use that as an example that like, that was my anchor as I was looking at Bitcoin. It was like, that is certain in my mind. The timing is uncertain, like when it happens, how it happens, but, but that it happens is, is true. Okay, if that if that is true, then there has to be a solution. What is the solution? Is Bitcoin viable as a solution? You know, uh, and 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 as we go further out in time, more things are uncertain. But the things that you know will be certain at some point in the future guide all other thinking, in my view. So it's just kind of trying to get down to always, and it's not. It doesn't just apply to Bitcoin; it applies to other things. Um, things that I kind of way I would think about investments um, when I was at Heyman Capital. Um, but that kind of going to the least common denominator, the assumption that you know to be true, and then the, the thing that all other assumptions build off of uh, as, as the general way of thinking. So um, to being put on the spot like that, I, I don't know if that uh, adequately um, thought about it, but it p- probably ties back to just being risk averse and also kind of generally a, a, a logical or rational mind to be like, okay, am I crazy with this Bitcoin thing? Or if, and the only way to prove that I'm not crazy is to get to that same kind of flash of an idea um, where like, probably a hundred different ideas come together all at once in an actual reasoned way. And so with my writing, I, I really tried to just say, okay, I had to struggle through all of these things myself. Let me unpackage the ideas that are in my head of the things that I struggle with because many other people would struggle with them as well. And actually through the process of writing, um, you might find that, you know, that that is the way to 
to to to always bring things back to, to first principles because oftentimes I would write something and I'd say, well, no, that, that's not a logical connection. Like there's some other lot. There is a logical connection. That thing I just wrote on paper is not it. Like let's try it again. Um, and it's just iterative. That's so true, especially if you're going to publish it in a public kind of way. Um, I know when I'm writing something, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get hammered if I would publish this or put this out into the public. And okay, let me re- let me ask myself why five times on this particular point and see if it really kind of holds up as I kind of drill down on it. It's a great point about writing. I like that. Um, if people want to learn more about you, Parker, where can they find you? I know you're active on Twitter. Anything else that you want to highlight? Just let it rip. Yeah, find me on Twitter, Parker A. Lewis. Um, read my writing. I've got a series on Bitcoin called Gradually Then Suddenly. Uh, it's on our website. Um, I'm head of business development at Unchained Capital, uh, based here in Austin, Texas. So you can find us on unchained.com. Uh, and then all of my articles are on the blog. I, I write the Gradually Then Suddenly series, and then also we'll write a number of um, of, of other things about our company, about financial markets. So. On our website, unchained.com, you can find it on the blog and then also uh, on Twitter, Parker A. Lewis. And if people don't know, uh, Michael Saylor has quoted saying that he that some of Parker's writing, the stuff that he was referring to earlier, was some of the things that convinced him to become a Bitcoiner. So kudos to Parker and his contributions to the space. Love having you on. Uh, you're just a total wealth of knowledge. And thanks for making time. Preston, always enjoy Appreciate you having me on. Hey, so thanks for everybody listening into the show. If you enjoyed the conversation, be sure to subscribe to the show on whatever podcast app you're using. We really appreciate that. And if you have time, leave us a review. So thanks for joining us this week and we'll catch you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.